Welcome back to the Surfacing Leaders Podcast, where you can come along with nuclear submarine officer, sought-after turnaround CEO and founder of Lead with Purpose, Mark Kohler, as he tells the stories of leaders in unlikely places and the human spirit that drives us all to show us that anyone can learn to be a leader. And now, here's Mark Kohler. Star Edwards is the co-founder, CEO, chairman, and culinary originator behind Bitch and Sauce. Star's maintained an active, visionary leadership over the now 75-plus employee company, guiding its rapid retail market emergence and continued propulsion across major retail banners that was birthed in the farmer's markets in San Diego. Bitch and Sauce is now solidified as a flagship pioneer product with the growing nut-based dip segment. The company continues to set its sights high, achieving international distribution in 2023 and upholding an ambitious rollout of product innovation. Star's excellence in leadership has been recognized through numerous accolades, including induction into the Women President's Organization's 2023 list of top 50 fastest-growing women-owned and led companies. Star, welcome to Surfacing Leaders. Hi, Mark, and thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. So let's just uh, let's have a little conversation about your background, you growing up, and, and let's take a journey to today. My background is pretty funny. I would describe myself as a West Coast gypsy. I grew up actually in Oregon and uh, graduated high school early. I was um, kind of just eager to get out and get going with stuff. I, you know, I had always really liked working, and I didn't get into the college of my choice. So at age sixteen, I moved up to. Seattle and just was living with a group of friends and working full time. And then I moved down, you know, back to Northern California, was working full time. And then finally found my way down to San Diego and realized that I had been working full time for a long time for a young person. And I wanted to kind of try to be a kid again. So I decided to go back to college. And that's where I met and fell in love with my husband. I'll let, what college is that? This is Palomar Community College. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, down in San Diego. Okay, great. Yep. And it's kind of interesting. He had a really similar journey. He graduated high school early also, but he was a musician and started touring like full time at, you know, age 16, touring around the U.S. And then, you know, after a couple of years was like, I kind of want to be a kid again. So he did the same thing and, and we met each other at that moment where we were both trying to be kids and, you know, Immediately when you decide that's when it's like, but here's a baby and now you're a parent. <laughs> <laughs> you not only are kids, you have a kid, right? Yeah. So that was great. We got, we had our son and, and we, you know, we're married and, but then it was like, okay, man, we're a young family. We need to figure out how to make ends meet. We were at the time, my husband was, you know, flipping surfboards, which is just, you know, buying and selling surfboards. He would paint them with spray paint and then sell them. And, it was just the endless cycle of surfboards coming and going. And my great idea was that I was going to go and be a personal chef. And so I decided that the best way, you know, to get clients was to go to the local farmer's markets and to sample, you know, the things that I had been making and build my clientele that way. So so, um, so real, real quick, my personal chef, if you look back, like wh- where, where did that come from? I always grew up, I mean, I grew up in a foodie family. My my parents were hippies. We were raised like vegetarian, like back when it was not as cool. It was, you know, still very health food market kind of style, you know. And so I always had access to kind of these interesting ingredients mm. and, you know, in trying to make things vegetarian, I was always like, you know, experimenting with how to take, you know, traditional recipes and change them a little bit to, you know, fit the dietary requirements that we had. So that happened. And then also, I think during, there was a big food network boom where it was like all of a sudden like the food network became so much fun to watch. They had all these great shows, oh, yeah. all these great stuff. And, you know, it was kind of just like a, a cozy time where people were cooking at home a lot more, I think, than um, they had in the past and, and getting excited about it. And I got excited about it too, but I did, you know, just kind of realize I was like, I have kind of a knack for this. I can cook and this is great. I did have a, a a mentor who helped me also. She went to an actual cooking school 
And, you know, I learned a lot from her, just not only about cooking, but from her about business. You know, she had these wild ideas to me where she was like, yeah, and if someone cancels on you, you still charge them. And I was like, this is mind boggling. Like, <laughs> you can charge people <laughs> for wasting your time. But yeah, so that's when I just decided to pursue that. Plus, I love the idea that I would have a flexible schedule or I could make my own mm. schedule and have be able to make it so that our son could be with one parent at least during the day and we wouldn't have to go and try to outsource childcare. Yeah, that's great. The other question I have for you is, if you're 16 and you're graduating high school, have you taken some type of intelligence test? I mean, you must be pretty smart. Probably your husband is too. Where, yeah, yeah where, where, where does that sit? I'd, I'd be interested in understanding that. I think I used to be smart. I don't know if I, <laughs> and I don't, I don't know if it is necessarily intelligence as much as I just was like very driven, driven, you know, very, very motivated. And I'm, my husband is brilliant. He's so talented. He can play a million different instruments, you know, and just like we'll hear something and be able to recall it immediately. And also, I mean, he's along with me. Like he's kind of transformed from being you know, a teenager to being a really successful businessman and learning every step of the way. So it's been really fun to be on that journey with him too. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking that step back and, and sharing that sharing that with me. And so love you get back to your story. I think you were saying, hey, we're trying to figure something out and I want to do personal chef. And I think you were talking about going to some fairs to, to take a look at that. Yeah. So in San Diego, they have really great, a great farmer's market scene where every week, there's usually like four or five a day, I think, happening around the county. And San Diego has great weather, so it's a year-round opportunity. But when I was first starting, I just was like, oh, I'm just going to go to you know one market and then I'll get clients. But at that first market, I brought you know I brought all kinds of things that I had made. I brought a bunch of pies and cupcakes and then the sauce that I had been making since I was about 16 years old. And I called it bitchin' sauce. I just like threw a label on there the, the night before the market and was like, okay, this is great. It's going to be called bitchin' sauce. That's super funny. And I called it that because, well, I, I mean, it's a longer story, but the reason why I didn't just go, hey, this is almond dip, which is what it is, uh, was because I wanted to be able to not alienate customers or people. You know, it just is really good tasting sauce. <laughs> so I wanted right. to be able to, you know, appeal to the masses. But yeah, so brought the sauce and, and it sold out. What years? What out. year is this roughly, Star? This was 2010. 10. Okay, got it. So yeah, but when, you know, sold out at the market and again, I was kind of, it was a shocking moment for me where I was like, oh my gosh, people will just give you money for an item and that's it. So like, that's it. You don't have to go to their house. You don't have to wash the dishes afterwards. You can just make something and sell it. And it was just crystal clear to me, like, okay, this is what we do now. Shifting gears, we're just going to sell sauce, going to make it, bring it to the market, sell it. And, you know, at first I was like, okay, this is, you know, we'll make ends meet. This will be enough to provide for our family. And it was really fun in those early days to, like, go to the market. And, you know, I was like, okay, maybe if we bring 20 sauces this time, that'll be great. And then we would sell out of 20. And I was like, oh, okay, how about, like, 30 sauces? And then we'd sell out. And, like, it just, the ceiling kept getting higher and higher like to the point like where we went to a market and like, sold like 500 sauces, which is insane. It's so much in like a four hour period. But yeah, and so I kind of realized like, oh my gosh, this is a thing. This is bigger than I expected. And rallied, you know, rallied the family and friends together and decided to make it into a actual business. So tell me about the early days of creating the sauce because it's not what you have right now where you have an entire manufacturing facility and all that stuff. Where was it being made? Is do we have a? I got this visual of you with a you know a suit you know white suit and crazy scientists pulling this all together and you know in your garage something that's sort of set up that does all that. T tell us about that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this was before they had the cottage laws that allowed, or I think it's called the cottage law. It allows for people to make stuff at their own houses and bring it to farmers markets. But back when we started, you had to have a commercial kitchen. And like you had to rent it basically for like a couple hours a week and try to make everything happen. Oh, you um, did. I will wow. say that huh. we had a rental kitchen. We didn't make all of the sauce there because a lot of times we would run out. And so we were, you know, we were being kind of renegades. We were making sauce in our kitchen. I'll admit to it. But yeah, I mean, it was a lot of like 
you know, we had just crates of lemons that we were squeezing, you know, peeling all the garlic, just doing everything by hand. And we had, you know, just a bunch of different blenders going and filling everything by hand. And, you know, it was a very slow process at first, but I think it was mostly slow because I was trying to do it all myself. And then uh, my husband actually came in and was like, I am now the head chef. Teach me how to make this and we can hang out together. I never see you anymore. We're going to hang out together and I'm going to make the sauce. I was like, okay. It's awesome. Uh, so yeah, so then, you know, we just really gradually scaled. I, and I mean gradually scaled, you know, like we went from having like a tiny little citrus squeezer to it was like, oh, and now we're going to get this bigger machine that can squeeze lemons in like no time. Uh, and then like, it's like, oh, now we get the Omega citrus squeezer, you know, just slowly leveling up. One of the first things that we got that was like, you know, commercial equipment was we got a piston filler, which was so great. Bought it on eBay. It was like life changing because instead of filling, you know, every tub by hand, it was this automatic, well, semi-automatic thing. And that was great. It showed up, you know, a month later it blew up, which was fun. <laughs> but you know fixed it got everything back in order and, and learned a lot about piston fillers yeah um, that's great yeah. and then eventually you know after about i want to say like a, a year maybe just under a year we had grown to the part where it was like we should get our own kitchen we should get our own manufacturing facility and, and make this happen and so then we went out and found a spot and leased it and that was a great new adventure too yeah. Is it the same spot that you're in right now? And you, did you just expand in that same spot or is it a different spot? It's not. So our, our first spot, we had just the greatest landlords. They really, they helped us so much. And, and we expanded, you know, eventually from one suite to, I think it, like we eventually had two or three suites. But, you know, eventually we got to the point where we needed like a loading dock. And so we had to move to the next spot. And so we did that. And we actually, we found this great, we found a Rubio's test kitchen that was like already made. And we were like, oh my gosh, this is great. This is turnkey. You know, because anytime you have to do any building or outfitting of a commercial facility or a kitchen facility, it kind of is a long process. So we were so stoked to find a spot that was ready to go. Oh, that's great. So one of the things that we think about with, you know, a company like Bitch and Sauce started in 2010, currently roughly 90 employees. Is that correct? Yeah. And being at the helm and being a leader in a company that you start and then to get it to where it is today is a, is a success story. But there's a different level of leadership that's needed when you first start versus to where you are today. Describe for us your leadership style as you started the company and then where did you see it shifting to what it is today? Yeah, I think my leadership style as I started the company was a lot different. You know, like I said, it was rallying friends and family. And there's a certain dynamic to that, you know, where you have a different relationship. And then when that, you know, it becomes also a business relationship, I would, that was probably one of like the most challenging things. Why? Why? Because it's like Thanksgiving and it's like, hey, how you do it? You know, how's, how's Thanksgiving? Are you grateful? Hey, how many did you sell? Because I, I put some money. Is that what it was? You know, it was more like trying to delegate to people or tell them what to do. Right. Like actually di direct people when, you know, feelings are so important. And some of like the social dynamics of the existing relationship, you know, kind of interfere with it. So, for instance, you know. When I am telling my husband how to make sauce, <laughs> I mean, he's great and he loves to learn and has, loves to do sure. stuff. But then if I have to be like, correct him and be like, this is a bad sauce and we're not going to sell it. You know, there's like a certain extra like cringiness that happens when you're like, but I still love you. <laughs> right, right. And I still love and respect you. And the same goes, you know, for other relationships too with like, you know, we had in-laws and siblings and you know best friends from childhood where it's like okay you know trying to build a business trying to be a leader in this but really trying to also be mindful of all these people and still be able to be friendly with them when the day is done and I think my style at the time I was like okay how can I do this and a lot of it was like I have to do it by by showing like literally showing them so 
like whatever I have to lead by example and it's like leading by example at that time was like I'm going to go and clean the bathrooms every day I'm going to be the one who's the last one you know mopping something up I'm going to figure out you know how to stack this pallet the right way and wrap it with something and use the pallet jack and do all this stuff um, like if there's a problem I'm going to solve it and I'm going to try to set the standard so that everyone can see like hey I'm willing to work hard for you and like you guys should be willing to work hard for me and I will say that didn't work that well. <laughs> it didn't work perfectly. You know, it's like, oh, it's great to have, you know, to lead by example. But at the same time, you know, I started getting like bummed out when I was like, I'm here, you know, doing all this stuff, sweeping the floors. And like, right. how come you're not here helping too? How come you're not, you know, seeing it, doing it also? I don't know. So, so that those were the early leadership approaches that you had. When did you... What did you do? Like you said, hey, I was a little bit disappointed in others not, you know, leading by example, maybe didn't work work the best. What did you do to work through those those situations? I think, you know, we tried talking about it a little bit, tried to be like, you know, hey, like I'm trying to show you this is the amount of output I'm looking for. Like I'm trying to set your expectations and, you know, we tried to talk through it, I think, for a little bit. But eventually, you know, the thing that worked the best for us was my husband just was like, Hey, you are the boss. You're just the boss. Just be the boss. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a shift in my mind for sure to be like, okay, like I'll just do this and I'll figure out how to communicate with people, how to delegate. But having, I think, clearer leadership and kind of not ignoring the other social dynamics, but not letting them, you know, really interfere with what was best for the company, categorizing them, you know, as two different things really was what helped us kind of break through and grow. Yeah. It's so important these days because the vision that we have as leaders is so clear in our head. And oftentimes we're sitting there, why don't they see exactly what I see? And sometimes the vision we have in our head is so clear to us, but now pretty a little complicated to try to explain and not only for people to understand, but to have that emotional feeling. And there's always that that little bit of a disconnect between those two. So I think it was a great step for you to, you know, get clear on the expectations of here's the expectations of what it means. And then you rising up out of it. A lot of times we see leaders who are still saying, hey, they're not doing it as well as I I can do it. And or the result's not going to be the same. And what we do as leaders is we take up that space and we don't allow them to grow into it. So I think it was a, a great advice by your husband. To say, hey, look at you got to vacate that space so they can they can learn and grow into it, and then be okay that they might just do it a little bit differently, and not exactly the way Star does. So that's great. What yeah. what does it look like now for you, leadership wise? What what are the keys uh, for you being successful and and for Bitch and Sauce being successful as it relates from a leadership perspective? Well, from a leadership perspective, I still really like to get my hands dirty. You know, I like to get in and see every part of the company. Um, it's, you know, it's one of my babies. So I like to see how it's functioning, see how everything works. So I would say that I'm still very much involved in a lot of it, but I have gotten really good at delegating. I think I've gotten good at I'm a lot better <laughs> delegating than I was before. And now we have just this wonderful team of, you know, people who have their own talents, their own you know, their own expertise, but it's just, it's been amazing to see it and to see kind of the backgrounds are so different too. But after, I think like, as we grew, like it started with just kind of backfilling with the people that we already had, right? So my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law are part of our leadership team. And, you know, they started each of them when they were 18 years old at Bitch and Sauce and have just been growing since then, you know, learning every aspect of the company and then, you know, finding their talent and focusing on it and, you know, getting training as they needed to be able to really thrive there. I poached one of my childhood friends from coaching. She was a a volleyball coach. I was like, you should come and work for me. Um, Because it was a pretty clear thing. I was like, I'm not great at communicating to people as much as they want to be communicated with. So I'm going to find someone who can help me with that. And uh, I just, you know, I'm, Amanda, she's our chief of staff. She was just like, excels at coaching people. And so we brought her in and she does an amazing job. And that's a cool role too. I don't think that everyone has a chief of staff in their business, but I will say that that is like a really fun one. I think that kind of is unique to Bitch and Sauce 
And then we have, you know, our sales and ops leaders, which we actually, you know, we went into the industry and found people who had experience, knew what they were doing. Um, and then we also have a couple wonderful leaders that, again, like not like, you know, 18 years old family members, but people who started with us so early and then just learned every aspect of the business. And it's just been super cool to see these people promoted, you know, from, you know, packaging something or doing basic data entry or, yeah, it's mostly just like packaging boxes, <laughs> seeing them starting at that level and then growing to being like, you know, our, the VP of supply chain, our director of sales, and then like our VP of marketing is our most recent promotion. And it's been so cool just to see these people on these growth trajectories, starting kind of small in the company and then becoming leaders. Wow. There's a lot of wisdom in that. And so I'm, I'm going to I have a couple questions for you just to help us understand how you approach this. First off, what is the your chief of staff? What are their just responsibilities? Because you said, hey, it'd be great if everyone had a chief of staff. But a chief of staff at Bitch and Sauce, what are their roles and responsibilities so people can maybe understand that better? Yeah. I mean, well, I think the way that it was a position was formed in our mind when we first made it was kind of like, you know, the godfather, like conciliary (laughs) (laughs) okay Uh oh need like that you need that person right you need that person who you're just like you know everything that's going on right or like you you have a basic understanding of everything that's going on and, and we can you know talk to you about you know the challenges that we're doing and not have to face them on our own as you know with the c suite and i think part of it too was like for us, it's kind of a higher function of HR, right? She began as our HR director or HR manager. And this was like, you know, the growth that we saw for her in the business was, okay, you know, this is taking care of the staff, right? Taking care of all the people. But also more than that, it's like kind of has like more risk assessment involved with it too, where it's like as for a growing company, you know, this is the staff right now. What is this going to look like once we pass that 50 person threshold? What's it going to look like once we have to do 401k and all these things? So it's a lot of business development that is more regulatory, I guess, and less like strategic. And having someone handle that has been really great. How, how does how does that differ? Do you have a chief operating officer at your company? Okay, so how does that differ from a chief operating officer? This is funny because my husband has like a bunch of different titles. He can't really decide on Sure. One. So he's like, he's been VP. He's been the chief operating officer. He's been, what else has he been? <laughs> GM. No, I think, I mean, the operating, we don't have a, a really a chief operating officer. I don't think like the way that a lot of other people have it. Okay, because well, we like, some of the... Yeah, because some of the chief of staff stuff you were talking about is in a traditional seal. And so I just want to try to help make that connection for for people. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it is kind of similar, but maybe just with more of an HR focus. Yeah, yeah. And so look at, look at you're the first person in the company. Guess what? You get a business card that says president and founder. And the <laughs> first person that comes in that that is going to be selling, hey, guess what? They're the VP of sales. They might be a customer service person, but it's just the titles in smaller companies are are less important. So. No, but I will say like um, one of the other things too that maybe is a little bit different um, is that like I'd say half of, not half, but like a huge part of what her focus is um, our culture too with our team. And like that's a big deal right now, especially because, um, you know, when we have a growing team, we have a very strong, you know, kind of bitchin' vibe, I guess. (laughs) And, you know, maintaining that has been maintaining that or, you know, cultivating that has been a huge, what is it, a huge responsibility as we're growing because it changes all the time. You know, it's like, it's, we're not the same company we were when we were 10 people or 20 people or 50 people, but trying to maintain like the same kind of like spark and enthusiasm when we have a bunch of people, that's something that she really focuses a lot on. Well, you just went to one of my favorite topics, which is culture. Culture. Culture, which is culture. But before we get there, I have another question for you. You talked about being able to empower people. What do you specifically do? What is some of your actions that you are doing to empower people? Well, I think that training is the biggest way to empower people, which is kind of the opposite in a lot of ways of empowering people, I think. 
<laughs> no, you're on. You you have something. Yeah, like training is critical these days. People have to have their own internal universities. We that's what we tell people. You got to have your own internal university. Got to train people. Yeah. But it, that is, I mean, where I think that it's kind of like, you know, counterintuitive is that like training, like I just think about, you know, like training wheels or like when I'm teaching my kids to like walk, like I'm holding your hand through this, I'm you're training. But then, you know, when you get it, you'll be able to go. But like really, and I think for us, like really kind of fine tuning the expectations for how long it takes to train someone, you know, how in depth you go with things, how to... And I think like how to train them too, like how to be transparent enough so that they can like not just like follow the directions, but that they can kind of follow your instincts and your visions without having to go back and ask you. And that takes a lot of training. <laughs> do you have a do you have a like specific training program that you have developed that's formalized inside of Bitch and Sauce, or is it more haphazard? More haphazard. I mean, it, each individual. Um, each individual department has their own training track, you know, for the things that they want them to, to whatever, learn for their position, you know, and it's different for everyone. Marketing is way different from, you know, people who are making sauce for the first time. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, from the people who I'm directly training right now, like it's very much like a, we're going to do this together and then you're going to do it yourself. And I'm just going to, you know, be supervising until I think you got it. And even then, I'm still probably going to supervise. <laughs> but it is really fun when you see, like, you know, someone who does feel empowered, who does feel confident in in how to how to act, how to execute, and you know, goes off and does something and like totally gets it right. It's just like the greatest thing. It's it's the best thing as a leader. You're like, they did it. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. It's everything. What do you think that instinct came from? Because there's two ways you can train people. We, we always say when you're training someone, almost similar to what you said. We said, hey, when you're trying to train someone, we say, if you're training your kid how to ride a bike, you don't put them on a 10 speed on a downhill. Oh, yeah. Right? Maybe you're at a tennis court where it's a little spongy and they got the wheels on and they got all the different you know, safety elbow pads and knee pads and mm -hmm. they're going around and then they build confidence at that level. And then you take the training wheels off and you're running behind them holding the seat. And then you let go of yeah. it and you don't let them know you're letting go of it. And then you yeah. stop them and say, hey, you're doing that on your own. And then they take off. And that's the, that's the feeling, but that's the way to get to, to success. And so that instinct that you had to do that, do you think that was from, maybe that was from being a parent or do you think it was something earlier in life? Maybe your, your upbringing, the way your mom and dad raised you, where do you think that came from? No, I think, you know, now that you mentioned it, it probably is from being a parent. And I think from, you know, just the attachment that I do have with the company where it's like, like I said earlier, like, oh, it's another baby, right? Because just the overall responsibility of the entity, of all the people that it impacts, whose lives, you know, are counting on it. Um, we didn't take any, you know, early investment or anything like that. This was like, a, this was self-funded. So, and we had no money. So it was really hard to self <laughs> So like, you know, there's so much like, there's so much blood, sweat and tears involved that I do think like I had so much care for the success of it that like, it was like, it is like, you know, watching your kid go down. You're like, I really don't want you to fall and get scraped. So, you know, making sure that people were stewarding it in a good way, I think was really mattered to me. What made you go out? Who's the volleyball coach? Uh, that's my friend, Amanda. Amanda. And she's not the chief of staff, is she? Is she? Oh, she's the chief of staff. She's the chief of staff. What made you go find a, vol a volleyball coach? Like what was, you know, because the question is, hey, do I go on, you know, back then it was probably one of the sites, Monster or whatever, or should I hire someone to, to do this? What made you go to a, a volleyball coach? Well, I mean, specifically, we had been friends for since we were 14. So I knew her really well. But I do think like I was able to kind of see her strengths and see them outside of her, you know, specific vocation at the time. So it was something where I realized like, hey, man, she can rally a team together. She can rally people together who maybe are mad at her for the way that she's, you know, telling them to run laps right now. She just had some qualities that I knew that I lacked, you know, as far as leading a team. And so I just was like, I think you should come and do this. And she told me, she's like, I can't do this. Like, I'm used to just 
handle it. I'm used to teaching, you know, teenage girls. And I was like, I think it's the same thing. I think it's just like people are people and you just got to rally them together. And so, yeah, she ended up coming on initially just as the head of HR. And then we ended up promoting her to, to chief of staff. But I will say that after, you know, bringing her in and seeing what she did and, and her, you know, kind of unique vantage point as a coach, that was definitely something that we were like, if there are other coaches out there, we think that is highly desirable. You know, just someone with kind of a teamwork mentality and typically like a lot of discipline that we recognize as like a weakness of ours, right? It's not that we don't have like, you know, the motivation or the drive to get stuff done, but like we have like a gypsy musical lifestyle, <laughs> right? Where it's like very highly like creative and different cities every day. And that takes a lot of, you know, specific discipline too. But, you know, going and doing the same thing day in, day out, executing the same thing day in, day out, we recognize this maybe not our best strong suit. So yeah, we actually, we hire a lot of coaches. So I think it's just a great example of your approach and how we as leaders have to approach the human capital and the human assets that are needed today. The number one skill that people are looking for in an employee is can they collaborate? That's the number one skill. Doesn't matter if you're in accounting, doesn't matter if you're in manufacturing, can you collaborate? The second thing is can you communicate? And the third thing is can you adapt at speed? So, so those things, as we have this dynamically changing world, I think what is a great example of what you did is you freed up your mind to say, hey, it doesn't matter that she's a volleyball coach. These are the skills and traits, self-assessment-wise, that you said, hey, we need to shore up. And without getting rid of the gypsiness of, of everything, because if you got rid of all that and you just went straight you know, process and all that stuff... And as you grow, this is just a, a great example of what you did. As you continue adding every single person onto the culture, you keep adding you know, tremendous uh, increase in the number of people who have to communicate with each other, and it can get way out, of, way out of hand. So I think it's just a great example for all of us as leaders. As we take a look at employees, it's about hiring for the values, and then you, you can train them for the skill. And it's a lot higher, mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to hire someone who is open to learning, who mm -hmm. naturally likes to communicate, who is okay to get feedback. And the feedback is, mm -hmm. hey, this is to make you better. So that that's great. Okay, you brought up the C word just a few minutes ago, and I got so excited about it. You know, the, the word culture. Describe for me, what is the bitchin' culture? The bitchin' culture, and this is where I should have our chief of staff come in because she just is like, culture queen. Now, bitching culture, is, it's very representative of our brand, which is we're cool, we're fun, we're relaxed, but we're not lazy. <laughs> and yeah, I think, I mean, we have really simple core values that I think make our cult, that identify our culture the best, which is, you know, our number one is actions are louder than words. And then our number two is that we are committed to, you know, continual improvement, quality, bitch and excellence. And I think we call it bitch and excellence. Yeah. Bitch and excellence, which is just continual improvement, always getting better so that we can continue to grow. And then we have give and serve at every opportunity. And that I think is a huge part of our company culture. We have some amazing, like very unique, quirky things that I think only our company does. And it's very much geared around family, very much geared around, you know, just working together. And then also, you know, celebrating the big wins, working through the tough stuff, having packing parties and shipping out as many pallets as we can, you know, up until midnight and then, you know, celebrating with beers the next day for happy hour. Yeah. You know, a lot of companies are like, hey, the speed of business today is so fast. Like it's hmm. the competition is through the roof, you know, supply chain, you know. Yeah. So th those are just like some examples that we typically hear. If you were to you know, look at and what are the biggest challenges that are happening today for you and, and how have they changed? I don't want, we don't need to know every single year, but from 2010 to today, what are the biggest challenges that you've experienced and the company's experienced? Yeah. I, I mean, I just don't feel like the, the challenges have changed that much. I feel like it's all the same challenge, which is just, there's the unknown and you have to be able and willing to 
tackle it, <laughs> which is so uncomfortable, right? Because you don't know what you're doing. So like that, to me, that's been the constant, it's a constant challenge. It's you don't know what you're doing. You don't know how to do this the best way. And it's always, you know, but the, the difference is, you know, it changes what you don't know what you're doing. You master one thing and then there's a new thing that you don't know what you're doing. Um, but in the end, that is the struggle is around, you know, not knowing how to complete something perfectly and then having to go forward boldly anyways and get it done. Um, so like right now, you know, challenges that we're handling right now, I think, you know, there's challenges around scaling. There's challenges around supply chain. Last year was really crazy where it was like, you know, there was, you know, conflicts and stuff making it so that our, one of our number one input puts, you know, skyrocketed. And that was a challenge where we were like, oh, shoot, now we need to go and fly to Argentina and try to meet some <laughs> suppliers, okay. you know, had to do some fun, creative problem solving. And like, I think, you know, right now we're dealing a lot with, you know, being a bigger company and having that, you know, bigger group of people and trying to still have, you know, the family familial kind of connection that we that's so ingrained in our DNA, you know, but I, like I said before, like that was really a, an interesting part when we were first starting too was trying to be like, how do we operate this as a business and a family? And it's still, you know, the same thing now, how do we operate this as a business and a family, but just on a larger scale. So I guess it's like, I don't feel like the challenge has really changed. <laughs> As it relates to an unknown presents itself to you, how do you, how do you analyze that? What are the skills and tools that you use as you're taking a look at a challenge or an unknown? an unknown i think i mean the first thing you try to do is research right you try to figure out everything you can about it you got pretty lucky i think by being willing to ask dumb questions and look stupid in front of people <laughs> you know that was our form of research is when people come in and they say you know this is what i need you to do to submit this oh yeah we're, we're going international now so like this is a fun thing where i'm like i have to relearn new regulatory stuff for international markets and it's like, you know, they're like, just fill this out. And I have to like ask really dumb questions where I'm like, do you mean here? <laughs> like, you just ask dumb questions. But yeah, so like researching is the first thing. I personally am like, I feel like being very thorough about like the researching, researching part of thing where it's just like, I'm going to understand what this is. I'm not just going to do it. I'm going to actually understand like the purpose behind these things. Um, and then, you know, once you have all the information, you try to make your, your best, best, uh, <laughs> your best choice on how to move forward, I guess. <laughs> and then execute on it. Do you believe that being very young initially when you started the company and you said you didn't really, you know, there's a lot of unknowns during that time and having to work through all of those unknowns? And then with a smaller group of people, do you think that was, was tremendously valuable for you now having the skills to operate in a more unpredictable, more dynamically changing environment? Yeah, I do. I think it was crucial. I think that without that experience, we'd have a way different perspective of how to tackle some of these things. I think it would look a lot more daunting. But like with the challenges that we're facing today, it's just a constant thing that like Luke and I are like, well, we've been uncomfortable before. We can be uncomfortable again. It's fine. We're going to make it through. Yeah. Star, what we try to share with leaders who we're working with is you got to give ambiguity a big hug and just be comfortable <clears throat> with ambiguity and know that it's about exactly what you said. Can you evaluate? Can you find some research on it? Can you evaluate the mm -hmm. different data points? Can you identify risks with these, those data points? And then even if it's not exactly 100% right, can you just take the first step? and then course correct to success. So all of that feels super uncomfortable, but it's interesting, the experience that you had in a much slower, much less disruptive environment in 2010 is you with a bike with training wheels on, learning how to make decisions and then having the components of it. And then as the speed of the world sped up, the, mm -hmm. you know, you were able to then, you know, take the training wheels off and maybe you're not on a full downhill, but maybe you're on a six speed, then a 10 speed and all those things. And what we really push 
is that all of that, all of it, hey, it's not, you're born with it. You can learn this. And so mm-hmm. that that's a, that's a big thing that we want to let people know, like you have personal readiness and you have collective readiness inside of you to be able mm-hmm. to be able to give ambiguity a big hug and it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay to be uncomfortable. So, but I think your, I think your early experience, you know, in the jungle, just going like, how do I do this is what helped you to really develop that skill and nurture it. And what's great to hear is that skill is not only learnable, it's shareable. And so that's what you're yeah. doing with your, with your training that you're doing. That's really like, Hey, let's sit there to machine and let's take a look at this and let's go forward. So, so that is, that's really, really good. But as from the first recipe that you did, first off, mm-hmm. is that like, you know, Coca-Cola has their recipe like in a safe and only like one person knows it totally. Yeah. What is it? Tell us the bitch and sauce recipe. Who knows about it? How protective are you of it? I would say we are reasonably protective. <laughs> I It is interesting though, because like, I think, you know, the Coca-Cola safe thing, it, it sounds really it's such a fun idea, but in a lot of, and I think that, you know, there's a lot of food laws that allow them to do that. But as our world is getting more interested in, you know, health and wellness and how it relates to food and transparency in food, like the secret recipe is kind of a thing of the past. You're really not able to do much with a secret recipe. So I, I mean, obviously like the people who are making the sauce, like they know the recipe. And, you know, we try to, we do try to keep it, you know, it's a trade secret. We're not going to tell you our spice blend. We're not going to tell you these things, but I will say that that's getting like more challenging. And especially like as we're going to other countries where they have, you know, different allergens and different things that we have to be mindful of. What's really fun about the recipe, first of all, the cost effective thing, there's no way. We are so, so good at sourcing. I'm, and I'm saying that I have full humility about it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like my team is just really good at sourcing and has been doing it, you know, with building these relationships over time that like we we actually we we didn't raise our prices for 12 years. Like our team has been amazing with sourcing and then passing those savings on to the customer. The it's not just the ingredients, it's the process too. And it's actually incredibly difficult to make vision sauce and to make it on like a large scale. It's something that we are constantly trying to improve how to make a more consistent, perfect sauce every time and making sure that it gets, you know, from manufacturing to someone's table, consistent, perfect every time. It's really hard and it's really funny to see, you know, competitors come in and be like, it's just this, we're just going to mix it together. I'm like, you should find something else. I, I like, and I say that mostly because I'm like, this is a tough space to be in too. This is like refrigerated food. Like that's a tough supply channel. I don't know that I would go for it again. <laughs> what was what was the flavor of the original sauce? What is the it was the original flavor? Yeah, or original, which is just original, kind okay. of lemony, garlic. How much has that changed since you first did it and you were at that farmer's market? Like the actual recipe has not changed. We just make a lot more of it now. No tweaking of it or exactly the same. Wow. I mean, our batch size is much bigger. Yeah, that's awesome. How many sauces are you currently offering? I think we have, man, I should know this. I think we have like probably around 22 different like flavors used, different offerings. Yeah, I saw ones that you have chocolate now and what was it, salted caramel, probably for more like apples to dip in or or stuff. I got it. Yeah, the chocolate is a hit. Like the children love the chocolate one. They just eat it with a spoon. That one's kind (laughs) of, that one's so good. Like I think that's just going to take off and probably give Nutella a run for their money because it's so delicious. It's just, you know, most people don't look for that in the refrigerated section yet. Marketing. We talked about your brother-in-law leading the marketing. And I love your thought of, hey, it was the night before. What's the name? Bitchin' Works. And it, it's iconic now. Who is the, who's the boy on the, is it, is it a picture of a boy? What? It, who, yeah, that's, that's her son. That's Skipper. Who, who is that? 
it's our son's skit. Oh, it our is. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Is he proud of that? He's very proud of that. I wonder. I should ask him. I think he is. I think he thinks it's fun. Are the other? You have. How many kids do you have right now? We have five kids. You have five. Are the other ones pining to, hey, where's my picture? Yeah. So two of the girls are on the sweet sauces. Oh, they are. Okay. And then the other two are just little babies. So we have to come up with some new items for them. Oh, that's that's great. That's good. I love your comment. It's not just the recipe. That's a that, that's a really great comment, and I think it's relevant for all leaders today. It's not just the product; it's actually the people. You talked about being the process, but but I really love that. You know, as a, as a takeaway for me, also, because we get so enveloped into our recipe and what it is, and it's really about it's really about the people and and everything else. When I think of a sauce with the exception of maybe chocolate now, where you can eat it with a spoon. When I think of a sauce, I think of a, especially bitchin' sauce, takes the other foods that I really love, and it takes it to, to a next level. And how do, you, how do you see that relating to your leadership style, and how do you see it impacting bitchin' sauce? Taking food to the next level? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's how we started was like, this is going to, it was more of a meal prep thing. Like we're, this is going to be an enhancement. This is going to take stuff to the next level. I think we had a happy accident when we ended up having, you know, putting it in a tub, in a little tub. It, it turned it into like, this is party food, which is kind of crazy, but you know, and it's a snack. It's like, it's party food. You don't really pay attention to how much you're eating as much. So a lot of people eat like a whole tub in one go. But I think, you know, that actually is, <laughs> that is pretty reflective of my leadership style, I think, in a lot of ways, because I'm very much like a more the merrier person. We need, you know, that's why we have, you know, all these friends and family along the way working with us. And that's why we've done a lot of things in house. You know, we've done like our own manufacturing. We have our own teams running a lot of these things because it is like very much like the more the merrier, you know, even the kids bring them too. But yeah, I can see that reflected in, in our bitch and sauce being a party food. Yeah, I think as leaders, you know, we have tremendous power. And the power we have is to, is to either really enhance something or we have the power to really detract from something. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about bitch and sauce, I really think about leadership too, because you wouldn't take that sauce and put it on something and make it worse. Today, every single day, we're trying to, hey, what are the things we have to do to earn our employees wanting to come to work and, and wanting to give their all? And, and what are the things that we can do? What's the quote unquote sauce that we can bring as leaders to, to help enhance their day? And when they go home, you know, at the end of the day, that they say, you know, I had a great, a great day at work today. And because when they're better at work, that obviously translates to the other different areas of all of our lives. So what is the biggest thing that you're proud of? Funny, after our entitlement meeting, I'm like, I'm trying to not use that word. <laughs> when I do, it's very rare. It's like, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I think I might be superstitious or something about that word. Biggest thing I'm proud of, I'm, I am proud of, you know, my family, my uh, marriage and, um, you know, my children, like I am, like, I love just seeing that continued success. As far as the business goes, I, my favorite thing is seeing the team grow and seeing them succeed in what they're doing. So, you know, anytime that happens, it's amazing. I do think like, you know, some of the numbers that we're hitting as a company, I'm just like, no one would have thought this 13 years ago. No one would think like, I I forget what it was. It was like, Every minute, you know, like 40 tubs of sauce are being sold every minute. Like it used to be 40 tubs of sauce sold at one market. <laughs> like, And now it's like every minute across the world, it's like there's 40 tubs of sauce being sold, which is just crazy. But I would say that's more of like a humbling thing than something that I'm like, oh, I'm so proud of how I did that. I think it's more of like a holy cow. Is that real? <laughs> that's great. It's always great to... You know, celebrate your successes, but continue to stay humble because the world does change 
you know, on a dime and be ready for that. I have one final question for you. People who are listening to this podcast, if you were to share one thing, what's the one thing that leaders can do to surface the leader with inside of them? I think it would go along with that humility point, which is, you know, the thing that I think helped at least for me to, to surface as a leader was being humble to the things that I was actually good at and also to the things that I was not good at, asking for help, you know, with the things that I was not able to thrive at or not able to, you know, competently lead the rest of the team with. But, you know, the things that I found that I was good at, like being humble to being good at that. That's just really sound wisdom, really, really great advice. What's the vision look like for Bitch and Sauce five years into the future? And I know you're not going to give us your five-year vision from what your team is working on, but give us a sneak peek. Yeah, we want to be, I think we're, we're on our, our way there, but we want to be, you know, the iconic almond dip. We want for when people think of, hey, you know, I'm going to try a nut dip to think of bitch and sauce or even beyond that, you know, we want for them to we want to just like define the category, like kind of like Nutella or like Vegemite or, you know, we that's what we want. We want to be a trailblazer, even ketchup, you know, ketchup's great, but you always think of one brand when you think of ketchup. Like we want to be that. We would just want to be bitch mm. and sauce. Oh, that's awesome. I did read that you recently launched a record label. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. My husband is recording right now, which is a really fun process to watch. We launched a record label. <laughs> I, where, why did we do that? That's a good question. No, my, my husband has been a musician for a really long time. He you know, took time off the road and off of you know, pursuing music in order to help build Bitch and Sauce. But you know, as we were able to free ourselves up more and more, we kind of started going back into it and you know, eventually we kind of just realized from being in the business world that, you know, we could handle some of the business aspects of, you know, becoming a successful musician. And in addition to that, you know, we have kind of a heart for the artist and making sure that, you know, that they have an artist friendly relationship with their label that really allows for, you know, just making the best product. Well, uh, Star, it's been a fantastic, fascinating conversation. I've really learned a lot from your approach to leadership and um, your ability to, you know, combine that gypsy creativeness with a will and a perseverance, along with just really the simple thing of just caring for your employees. That is the secret sauce that all companies and all leaders need, need, need to find. If you follow this um, recipe that Star and Bitchin' Sauce is using, um, you're going to find tremendous success. So um, I love the quote where it says, slinging sauce by day, rock and rolling by night. <laughs> so Star, thank you so much for, for being on Surfacing Leaders. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining Mark today. And remember, new episodes of Surfacing Leaders will be available every other week where you can become inspired, gain confidence, and learn leadership right where you are. Until next time, make it a great day.